Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your other host, Jackson Eflin. I like to vary it up every now and again. Thank you for joining us for episode two of our Bride of Monster Bracket. This week, we'll be discussing 2004's Stepford Wives, as well as 2009's Drag Me to Hell. I always like it when our movies are made around the same time. It gives kind of a cohesion to the movies, or a lack of cohesion, and we can talk about why. Mm-hmm. I tend to really enjoy both films being like really close to each other time-wise, or very far apart. Right. Like, 40-year gap or something. Mm-hmm. Like, Cowboy vs. Aliens vs. Annie. <laughs> Utterly different worlds, those movies. Mm-hmm. Before we get any further into our discussion, we should probably mention some content warnings for Drag Me to Hell. Stepford Wives is pretty tame and doesn't shouldn't really require them. Let us know if you disagree. But for Drag Me to Hell, content warnings for eating disorders, as well as vomit and some gore. Mm-hmm. We probably won't get super into the gore. Like, if you plan on watching it, it's right. good to know. But if you're the kind of person for whom, like, horror movie gore is your thing, this is probably, honestly, a good choice for you. It's one of those, like, fun Raimi flicks where he just gets ludicrous with stuff. Yes. Typically talk about how I'm not really into the horror genre. That's not necessarily true. I'm not really into what's currently popular within horror. Mm -hmm. Like, I love things like Drag Me to Hell. The sequel to The Babysitter just came out on Netflix, and that is also extremely my shit. Like, I love horror comedies and, like, this over-the-top gore. And yet you have somehow not seen Ready or Not. I mean, we're, we're going to be fixing that later on. We sure are. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> I'm so excited to watch Ready or Not for the 14th time this year. Anyway, but we're not talking about Ready or Not yet. We're talking about Stepford Wives. Mm-hmm. Which, what's that about? After a disgruntled reality show actor attempts to murder her and the TV network fires her for insurance reason, Joe Anna Eberhardt and her family relocate to Stepford, Connecticut. It's even waspier than you'd expect it to be. And while Joanna's husband, Walter, acclimates well, Joanna struggles to fit in with the women of the town, all of them the epitome of a 50s advertisement housewife. She does eventually make friends with the other misfits, Bobby Markowitz, a writer, and Roger, a gay stereotype. But when they begin to assimilate, Joanna realizes something is wrong. She infiltrates the men club, but is discovered. Mike, the leader of the club, monologues that the husbands have been brainwashing their partners with computer implants and controlling them because they feel emasculated by them. Hashtag masculinity so fragile. Mike sends Walter and Joanna down to the lab to begin the procedure, and Joanna emerges as another Stepford wife. Or so it seems. Just as the town gathers to celebrate total assimilation and begin going global, Walter sabotages the implants, freeing the wives, while Joanna feigns her conversion and distracts Mike. Mike attacks Walter after the wives' revolt, but Joanna protects him and knocks Mike's head clean off, revealing to him to be a robot. It was Claire, Mike's wife, that was the mastermind, and reveals a flimsy backstory justification before electrocuting herself by kissing Mike, a la Romeo and Juliet. The film ends with Joanna, Bobby, and Roger finding new success in their careers, and the husbands of Stepford under house arrest, punished to perform the domestic duties that they forced on their wives. So, as you can tell from the summary, you were a huge fan of this one. (laughs) We'll get into it more, but bottom line is I think that the film is a little bit both sidesy, and it has the Fight Club problem. I'll agree it has the Fight Club problem. I didn't get it as being as both sidesy as I think you saw it being, but also might be we just have different experiences of gender and domesticity and marriage or whatever that make us view the things the character is saying in slightly different lights. A lot of what, to me, was clearly parody, I think maybe might not have been to other people. Mm-hmm. So, then again, I guess I think that all marriage is parody and the institutional gender is fake. 
We should just go ahead and come out and race it. Like, this is very heteronormative. Mm-hmm. Even with the inclusion of Roger and his partner, I honestly don't even remember his name. Butch, Buck, Tom, Rocco Fallon, Jonathan McTop. I don't know. Yeah. All you need to know is that he's a gay Republican. Mm-hmm. The worst kind of gay. Honestly, the inclusion of the gay couple makes the movie somehow even more heteronormative. Queerness is often a way to break up and throw into question traditional understandings of relationships and gender dynamics and all that kind of thing. And this movie goes the opposite direction and kind of, you know, there is a man and a woman in the relationship for for gay couples. Yeah, and the woman happens to be Roger. Yep. Roger, could we could we reel it in like a couple of hundred yards? <laughs> I'm sorry. Jerry thinks that I overdo, you know, everything. This came out in 2004, and it's like they just grabbed a character straight out of Will and Grace and plopped them in here. I just want to see when gay marriage, like, legalization started being a thing. We were uh, a few years away from any states, like, starting to be a thing. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Uh, I lied. Massachusetts, 2004. This is a hashtag topical. <laughs> uh, I will say that part of it is that they are both men, and I think that a better way to explore gender dynamics in a update of the separate wives would be to have a lesbian couple, mm-hmm. or honestly, both. Mm-hmm. That'd be a better way to explore what gender means now. Because like, a part of this I think was interesting is having like Joanna be a very like modern woman in contrast to these like very stuck in the fifties women, and like the huge disconnect over time as compared to the original Stepford Wives from way back when. Yeah, like I do like Joanna being a very modern woman. I do like the fact that all of the women are Stepford were like very successful in positions of power in various areas of society. Successful like judges, uh, business executives, geneticists, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that it all seems that their relationships were struggling because of that, mostly feed the fault of the men feeling emasculated, and that's what drove them to Stepford, and that's what drove them to. This replacement whole... wise with robots yeah or not really they're not robots they just have like chips in their heads like they yeah they turn them into cyborgs that yeah. are they are able to control and they have no free will of their own right they are effectively robots mm-hmm. i think one of the things that really dissuaded me from liking this movie is the opening with joanna showing off the re- reality shows that she's been the mastermind behind for the network <laughs> Yes, they're hilarious, but there's also definitely this women are just inherently better than men streak there. Mm. And because I know what's going to come, having that there and having Joanna learn to grow and get past that, that's kind of the crux of the both sidesiness that I'm seeing from the film. We see where Joanna is, and we see how her relationship with Walter is suffering. And it's not just Walter's fault, it's also hers. Jesus Christ, Joanna. What? You were fired. Your kids barely know you, and our marriage is falling apart. That's what we're doing here. Well, I can't do it anymore. I can't keep fighting you for every inch of everything. Game over. Marriage over. (gasps) No! No! No what? Why not? Because you're right. And I don't think the film does a very good job of exploring that nuance and the different ways in which both sides are wrong. It just doesn't work for me. Sure. 
I'm now starting to see more of where it's coming from. I was too busy just being amused by the <laughs> by the opening to really start doing any analysis. That's fair. For those who didn't bother to watch it, fair enough. One of the reality shows she puts on is like a generic couple is sent to an island full of sexy people who want to do sex with them, and they have to decide after a week if they want to stay married or not. And there's like a like middle-aged woman who decides: Is it going to be Omaha or Omahunks? Well. <laughs> Uh, before I came on this show, I only had sex with one man, and that was usually Hank. I love Hank deeply and forever with all my heart. And I would never do anything to hurt him. But I can do better! Yeah, it's good. Mostly because that's functionally the shot of the plot of a show that premiered on Netflix that is utter trash that I watched all of. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. It is interesting that the plot gets going because the jilted husband, like, shows up at conference where she's speaking and attempts to shoot her. Mm -hmm. I guess we do need a trigger warning here for domestic violence because the whole plot starts because he murdered his ex-wife and all of her partners. Oh yeah, they off-screened that. Yep. I think that if the movie had honestly more of that, more like more like dark comedy, that mm -hmm. would make it work better. Mm -hmm. But most of the comedy is pretty tame. Yeah. And like, there isn't that kind of like Cruel Intentions level of like everything being trash and awful. Yeah. Like this film is just so mainstream. So it has to maintain that wide palatability. And I think it suffers for it because it doesn't really get to dive in any of the directions that I feel it should because it will put off some portion of the audience it's trying to get. Yeah, it is very safe. Yes. Honestly, the least safe part is the opening. The opening seems very fun, and I wanted more of that throughout. Mm -hmm. Gender exploration aside, like, energy of the opening. The opening has these feelings of, like, a Tim Burton film, or the live-action 101 Dalmatians. Yes, exactly. Like, just... Even with kind of close. Yeah. That weird surrealism, that dial that they're turning, and... The aesthetics are there, but the biting social commentary that usually comes with it is not. Mm -hmm. After that, we kind of get more into like quippiness as opposed to like actually biting social commentary. Like Bette Midler, God bless her, throughout has like some great zingers. Um, oh yeah, but it's like it's more like Golden Girls than mm -hmm. than something like Ashley hard hitting. Mm -hmm. Like there's a wonderful bit where someone asks her like, "Excuse me, is this guy bothering you?" Yes, he's my husband. It's that is great. Like that whole like that's a good vibe for this character. Yeah, like when all the misfits get together, all those scenes feel good. Like I love that they found this little click that they can feel like themselves in and not have to feel completely alone because they don't fit in with all the other wives of Stepford. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a great bit where Roger walks into Bobby's house for the first time, sees it's a wreck, and goes, "Are you making anthrax?" <laughs> oh, 2004. <laughs> yeah, like honestly, a lot of those scenes remind me of some of the back and forths in something like Sex in the City. Yeah, this is the energy of Sex in the City, but like the production values of Golden Girls. I will give the film credit for taking a look at the problems of toxic masculinity, specifically from men who society in general doesn't construe as the ideal masculine. Mm -hmm. Like, toxic masculinity can come from anywhere. Yeah. And these are a bunch of kind of schlubby nerds. Yeah, this is very much a Revenge of the Nerds kind of movie, as opposed to, like, the kind of toxic men you probably see in, like, as the protagonist of Fight Club. Revenge of the Nerds, but actually diving into some of the toxicity there, as opposed to just, it's wacky hijinks. Right, yeah. And I, I do appreciate that. And I do think it digs into the bullshit of 
the feelings of like being emasculated by your partner. Mm-hmm. Thinking of marriage as an actual partnership, as opposed to there having to be like a a dominant and a, a inferior partner, right? You know, caveat that if you're into dom sub stuff, carry on. Yeah, like that. That's a whole separate thing, right? I'm sure you can find me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but again, like there isn't quite enough nuance to that because because we do get the eventual resolution that Joanne and Walter didn't go through with it. Like they just ran a con on the neighborhood, but. We don't see that conversation happening. We don't see them talking through their relationship. We just that kind of happens off screen. We, we see some scenes of it happening, but we don't see like that very pivotal moment where where Walter decides that he doesn't want to go through this with this whole thing, which I think is a really important moment. And we don't get that for the sake of the reveal, which I think is a move that is that allows for more drama for the story, but doesn't allow for the nuanced character moments where Walter gets to actually like work through what was wrong. I wish we got more things from Walter's point of view. Here he's played by Matthew Broderick, and I think he's doing a really great job of playing this character who is about to fall into this very toxic paradigm because he feels that his life is missing something Mm -hmm. and decides not to because the influence from Joanna. Yeah. His character works, the actor is doing a good job. We should have, like, let that really prosper. Yeah. Because we can broadly assume that this is going to get solved. There wasn't that much tension after Joanna was converted. So I think it would have been a lot better if we just knew all along that she wasn't and the tension came from, will she be able to solve this or will they get found out? I honestly think if we would have gotten that good heart-to-heart scene after they go down into the lab Mm -hmm. and are alone, that would have been, I think, really cathartic and I think a really good spot to pivot the movie on. Mm -hmm. It would have been an opportunity to... Say the things the movie needs to say to make its thesis more clear. Mm-hmm. Speaking of clarity, oh boy, that ending. There's a lot happening there with Glenn Close's evil plan. Yeah, so I didn't get into specifics, but Glenn Close plays Claire. She was a like world-renowned geneticist. Hardworking and led to problems with their relationship. I was driven, exhausted, until late one night I came home to find Mike with Patricia. My brilliant, blonde, 21-year-old research assistant. It was all so ugly. Then early the next morning, as I gazed across the breakfast table at their lifeless bodies, I thought, what have I done? But more importantly, what could I do to make the world more beautiful? Mike, you're by Christopher Walken, so there's a weird image. She then murders them in cold blood has a break and just wants everything to be simple and perfect. And so she sets up Stepford, she builds Mike, and then starts luring couples who are having similar problems that she and Mike had to Stepford. And she starts off with converting the wives and also mentions that she is going to convert the husbands as well. Everyone's going to be a cyborg. But why didn't you change the men too? That's next. You're insane. And now that her plot is ruined, she does the Romeo and Juliet thing. Yeah. Leaving aside the weirdness of a geneticist being able to build a robot and then also build like computer chips that go into your brain that is separate from a robot. Like these are different, two different types of yeah. um, thing. She was a brain surgeon, so. Oh, okay. That, that's fair. Like then I will allow for the microchips and the brain thing. That's fine. A fully believable human robot is different. Yes. Hold on a second. Hold. We also see some of the wives like short circuit and like twitch. And 
It's weird. The movie goes back and forth on whether it's like brain implants or fully robotic body that has the personality uploaded into it or something. It's very odd. It's unclear. And I... So the original work that this is adapted from doesn't really have a cathartic ending. The point of view character gets converted and that's the end. Mm -hmm. It also never exactly spells out what exactly the process by which they convert the wives is. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a lot of poetic license that adaptations have taken by giving it a more Hollywood ending. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where that comes from. They probably went back and forth while they were producing the script, and there are bits and pieces that didn't get fully resolved. Mm -hmm. Which is unfortunate, because I think if the world was a little more cohesive, the the message might have been as well. Mm -hmm. But... I'm not gonna harp on it. I'm not gonna harp on it. I mean, like, no, I, I totally get what you. The ending with the reveal that Claire is the one behind all of this, it kind of cheapens everything. I will say, you can definitely have a narrative where a woman is responsible for promoting these toxically masculine ideals. That's totally a thing in the real world. Yeah, definitely. I think, honestly, Allowing that exploration is a good idea. Yes. I just don't think that this film has enough nuance to do that. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think an update of this would be really interesting is if you made Claire an out-and-out turf. Like, very explicitly and wanting very traditional gender roles and only two genders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that would work really well. I also think it might have worked better if instead of this very complicated murder and then robot and then brain chip thing, it was more just her being unable to deal with the stress of whatever her job was and voluntarily housewifing herself. Her husband being in on it and then then later deciding, hey, this worked for us to solve our marital problems. Let's Mm -hmm. apply it to everybody else. I think kind of like a really weird thing, but one that is less convoluted. Mm-hmm. Exploring someone who voluntarily goes through this process because they think it is the solution to their problems is actually a really interesting idea. Let's dig into that. Yeah. There, at one point when we were watching the film, I joked that I really hope one of them is like not a robot and just fits in really well. <laughs> yeah, that'd be really funny. Because we're in a horror space, I really thought that it was going to end with them turning off the brain chips and then like they're just murdering their husbands. So like all of them stabbing them all to death or whatever. And they don't. And admittedly, I guess probably in the real world it'd be better if people weren't stabbed to death. But, well, these guys, it'd be fine. Nothing nothing of value is lost. Yeah, there's also, like, the whole house arrest thing. It doesn't feel like enough. It doesn't feel like enough, and it also has a kind of, like, haha, the men are doing women's work thing. That, that is not satisfying, and it's not, I think, a nuanced enough way to deal with this. Yeah. That could be fine if in a different, much lighter thing. Mm-hmm. Or if there was, like, more to it than that, but... I think an interesting thing is, like, this film came out just 16 years ago, and it is, I think, su- surprising how far the Overton window has shifted when it comes to, like, gender roles in society, mm-hmm. because this feels so incredibly outdated already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, <laughs> remarkably so. I think, actually, a really good comparison for this would be uh, Ex Machina. Um, yeah, which we had also considered putting on this bracket as our evil woman robot film but we went with separate wives because we wanted something a little bit lighter vary up the bracket a bit that might have been a mistake yeah i don't want to give too much of ex machina away but also i think separate wives also fits the criteria better for our bracket i think is a, a spoiler free way of saying that uh but also man i wish i was watching ex machina right now mm-hmm. um but speaking of 
elegant transitions, drag me to hell. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and give our audience a summary? Sure. So, Christine is up for a promotion at the bank where she works, but isn't seen as quite aggressive enough by her manager and by her boyfriend's parents to show she can make hard decisions. She denies a loan extension to uh, old Sylvia Ganoush, who has a breakdown in the office. Later, Sylvia attacks Christine in the parking lot, and Christine manages to fend her off. However, over the next few days, she starts having visions of horror and comes to realize that Mrs. Ganoush put a curse on her. To quickly summarize, there's a Lamia coming for her. She has three days where the Lamia will torment her and then drag her to hell. The horrific visions are hacking up her work life and her, her romantic life, and when she tries to get Mrs. Ganoush to lift the curse, she finds that Mrs. Ganoush has died. A local medium tries to help her get rid of the curse by invoking a more powerful medium, only for the medium to get killed in the process. With no time left, Christine tries to transfer the curse back to Mrs. Ganoush, but without realizing it, bungles that too. Thinking that the problem is solved, she's headed off to a romantic getaway with her boyfriend. She instead goes off on a one-way getaway to hell. The end. Uh, this is a Sam Raimi flick, so it's a lot of kind of pleasantly wacky horror. Yeah. So this came out in 2009, which is just after Sam Raimi finished up his Spider-Man trilogy, which means at the time I was a huge fan of Sam Raimi, even if I w- didn't care too much for Spider-Man 3. So I'm like, oh, Sam Raimi has a new film. This looks interesting. And it was very different from what I was expecting. But if you're familiar with Sam Raimi's work prior to Spider-Man, it's incredibly in line with things like Evil Dead and Army of Darkness. Mm-hmm. It is horror tropes, but sometimes taken up to 11 to the point where it becomes comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's a very good bit where the Lamia is being challenged the medium and the medium transfers it into a goat. And so we get this maybe not a very convincing talking goat calling Christine a bitch. And it's very silly. Yeah. No! You did me, you black-hearted whore! Also, before we go any further, the film does use the G-slur quite a bit when talking about its Romani characters. Can you hear the line of the idea of a Romani culture being steeped in dark magic? Yeah. It's not great in that regard. I do think that there are less uses of the G-slur here than there were in Hunchback, which we've also covered on this podcast. Yeah. And which I maintain as being a pretty good movie. Yes. Um, that thing, you know, set aside. Throwing it out there, grain of salt with everything we're about to say. And we are going to refer to Mrs. Ganoush and her, her family as, as Romani as a thing, even though I don't think the movie ever actually does. I think we should start with the opening of the film, because I think the opening is incredibly strong, and it sets us up for the whole conceit of the plot. Mm-hmm. So we just get kind of a day in the life of Christine. We show her like going to work and the very casual misogyny that she deals with there. From her bank manager boss, who is the most bank manager boss ever. She has a new co-worker who is vying for the uh, assistant manager position incredibly hard. Stu. Mr. Jacks, by the way, aren't you a Laker fan? I am a Laker fan. My mom is having this thing on Sunday. I can't use these. Are you serious? Yeah, absolutely. These are great seats. Great seats. This is where they bring the hot dogs right to you. you So she is feeling pressure to up her game via that. She then goes to have lunch with her boyfriend. His mom calls and she overhears some of the conversation. She's uncomfortable with her son dating a farm girl. Amy Kulik is looking for someone to play tennis with. Yeah. You know she graduated from Yale Law with honors. and She's a very successful attorney now. I know, you told me. Yeah, that's the kind of girl I would love to see you with. And it's, it's very like waspy classism. Her parents are the parents from class. We show that Christine is, in general, up until this point, a good person. She's just struggling with these outside pressures and 
feeling like she's not enough. And that is what pushes her to deny this loan to this woman in need. Christine is very likable. She knows her shit. She, she seems very confident. I think it's very much a case of a talented person in the wrong place. Like, I think if she was working on a not-for-profit, she'd be doing great. Or if she was a teacher or something, she'd probably be, like, really skilled at what she's working with. The film does a very good job of showing how compassion is very often not a useful trait in capitalism. Mm-hmm. Which makes her kind of fall from grace a bit tragic. Like, in these kind of stories, you might assume that she would get bad and then become good after realizing her mistakes, but nope. This is a, like, surprisingly downer ending. I'm wondering if there were, like, some rewrites or some reshoots or, like, test footage or whatever that didn't go well or, like, studio mandates. Because, like, the ending feels weird for how not uplifting it was and for kind of how forced it feels. I don't know. They're not forced. Um... For how not quite satisfying it feels. It feels a little sudden, I will grant you that. But I I don't necessarily think that's the case. Like, that feels very Sam Raimi. Mm, sure. The script was developed before all of the Spider-Man films. Raimi was sitting on it for probably close to 10 years. Sure. So th- there, there might have been some changes and whatnot, but... After the Spider-Man trilogy, I'm pretty sure Sam Raimi could have gotten just about anything that he wanted. That's probably true. I think one of the reasons that the ending is the way that it is, is because even after she's cursed, Christine pretty much doubles down for the most part. She continues to lose her compassion. She continues to kind of be Mm -hmm. self-serving. You can see that in the scene with the cat. Yeah. Goes from being either vegan or vegetarian to murdering her own cat pretty quickly, honestly. Mm -hmm. The way in which she is willing to operate at work to get ahead of Stu still. Mm -hmm. And we see towards the end of the film that there's a little bit of turnaround. Like she offers Stu mercy. Forget it. I thought you wanted to give it to me because of the long stuff. Just leave. Okay. Thank you so much, Christine. But karma still comes to him anyway. I guess he thought we wouldn't find out. And we wouldn't have either, except that an hour ago, he came by my house and tried to pin the whole thing on you. After I confronted him about a few inconsistencies in his story, he broke down crying and, well, (laughs) we won't be seeing him around anymore. And it kind of does this fake out. It's like, okay, everything is going to get better. And then there's the twist that, oh, no, she didn't give the cursed object back. It's still with her. Mm-hmm. Quick overview for those who need it. The curse is put on an object that Christine has, and if she makes a formal gift of it to someone else, then the curse transfers to them. She tries to do that, but grabs the wrong envelope, because there is also an envelope of the same make that had a coin in it. Because her boyfriend collects her coins, she gave that instead. Oopsies. Yeah. The cursed object was a button from her coat. Yeah. But the way the lame works, it's like it just needs a soul, and it's going after whoever owns the cursed object. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really care who. And I think that if this movie leaned into it a little harder, if it was a very explicit tragedy about how capitalism drags you down and makes you become a worse, worse person, and then you get dragged to hell literally, instead of just figuratively, that could have actually really worked. But I, th- I think Sam Raimi's a little bit too lighthearted for that. You need like a Bong Joon-ho for that kind of thing. Um, this wasn't going to quite go there. Yeah. Or if it did, it didn't quite go there explicitly enough. One thing that I I think we should comment on, I really dislike the way the film goes out of its way to make uh, Mrs. Ganoush look gross and horrifying. Mm -hmm. It's kind of playing into some 
ethnic stereotypes with the Romani, and it's not great. Mm-hmm. Like, her being old and irascible, fine, but also her being, like, gross with her dentures, the, like, scariness of her blind eye, etc. Like, the very brown and ragged fingernails. Mm-hmm. I think one of those might be fine, but not all of them. I would keep the gums, because there's an amazing bit where during the car fight, Christine hits her and knocks her dentures out, and she kind of just gums at her mouth, and it's awful, and I love it. Yeah. The thing I love in this movie is when it gets gratuitous, honestly. Yes. Th- those are fun. Yeah, when when Sam Raimi gets to just go all out with his, like, gross effects, the film is great. There's this knockdown drag-out fight between Christine and Mrs. Ganoush in her car, and right after that is when she gets cursed. It is fantastic. And then there's a scene with her at the bank where she gets a bloody nose and it's just like spewing <laughs> yeah if you've ever seen kill bill it's like sprays of blood like that mm-hmm. there's also an amazing bit where the ghost of mrs ganoush is attacking her or is the lami is in mrs ganoush's for whatever but it's in the shed and there's literally an anvil held up by some ropes in that shed for some reason i don't know why that's how you're carrying your anvil or whatever and so christine literally drops an anvil on the antagonist because this is a looney tunes movie yeah The way this film combines legitimate horror and fear, but also this ridiculous, like, Looney Tunes over-the-topness is really interesting. It's something that Sam Raimi is known for. Mm -hmm. And a friend of the show, Mike, who watched with us, commented that having the real horror and the fake horror kind of created a total dissonance, which I get. It didn't bother me as much, but I I allow that opinion to exist. Like, it's a very good bit where Lamia has chased Christine in her house, She's closed and locked the door so we see the hoof prints in the light pouring under the door. The shadow of the hooves turning into shadows of hands reaching through. And that's cool as heck. That looks great. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I also really love how the way Mrs. Ganoush creates the button as this cursed object. And it, it acts almost as like this black spot throughout the entire narrative. Mm-hmm. One thing I will say that I think is a problem for me in this movie, Christine seems like she has no friends, especially no female friends. Mm-hmm. All the women in this movie are antagonists. We've got Mrs. Ganoush, Mrs. Ganoush's daughter, granddaughter, and granddaughter. granddaughter, yeah. And her boyfriend's mom. And I guess a medium. But the medium is very much a plot device and only has a bit of characterization that is kind of away in her part of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is a problem that often male writers run into where they don't write female friendships into things. Mm-hmm. Say what you will about Stepford Wise, but I genuinely do believe the friendship between Bobby and Joanna. I will definitely agree with you in that criticism. And it's really frustrating because it feels like other places in the script, they do a really good job of conveying the microaggressions that women constantly have to deal with in their day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. And being able to capture that, but having this other huge just void is really frustrating. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that with maybe like a few tweaks, you could have really dug into that like dug into her utter lack of female friendships and how that has led her to be like this yeah i think you could have replaced the boyfriend in a few scenes with a female friend or if the female friend was like really into like psychics and mediums and she's the one who convinces christine to go that would have been a very interesting and utilitarian way to work in a female friend Mm -hmm. or like one other co-worker Mm -hmm. also can you talk about how awful her boyfriend is do we have 13 hours (laughs) because that's gonna take a bit we could definitely talk about it It's really interesting because at the beginning, he doesn't seem like he's bad. And then as the film progresses, we get all these little things that begin to add up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I also want to kill the boyfriend. Give him the button. A lot of it has to do with downplaying Christine's experiences and being 
doing that thing that some atheists will do where they're like, oh, psychic religion, <laughs> this is fake, <laughs> Nietzsche, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Which, I don't want to say that like you're a bad person if you don't believe in that stuff, that's fine. But there are ways to disbelieve in things while still allowing people in your life to have that belief that doesn't make them feel bad for believing in stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is not that. I think the biggest thing is he plays down Christine's experiences. He does that thing where he doesn't listen to Christine about what she needs. He just tries to fix the problem in the way that he thinks is best. Mm -hmm. Once they send some officers over to have a talk with her, she's not going to be bothering you anymore, okay? So don't even think about her. And I'm going to call Mr. Jackson just make sure he can have somebody walk you to your car every night, okay? Okay. He does come around at one point and covers Christine's cost to go to the medium. It's like, I think, $10,000 that she has to raise in cash in like a day. Mm -hmm. uh, but honestly, while I'm glad he came around, it feels like a utilitarian plot thing, not like something that grew naturally. Mm -hmm. I don't really believe that scene. I think it was just, we have to solve this somehow. Here's how we're going to solve it. Yeah, e even if we had gotten a happy ending, I, I would not have expected their relationship to last. Right. Like I said, her giving him the, the button would, would be the modern ending for this movie. I just want a lot of women to kill their love, their love interests, apparently, this week. One thing I do believe, we talk about Christine being very likable, but then when she goes into, like, potential assistant manager mode, like Mrs. Ganoush, it's this very wooden, very ungenuine, very from-a-can kind of capitalist speak. Mm. And I think that was excellent acting from... Christine's actress has not done much. I don't know why. Like, uh, she's pretty... She's semi-retired after this. Huh. She's had a few minor roles, mostly in things that her husband directed or produced. Sure. And she mostly is an acting coach now. Sure. I mean, if that's what she wants to be doing, cool. But, like, she's got talent. She did a really good job portraying this character who is putting on a front. And I'm honestly kind of sad. I feel like if this movie had maybe done a little bit better or and been more well-received, she might have been, like, one of those, like, iconic horror actresses. Like, I don't know, Jamie Lee Curtis or Samara Weaving. And she's not. I'm kind of sad because she's good at it. Mm -hmm. Let's have a renaissance. Let's bring her back. Mm-hmm. I do think another part of it was that uh, she wanted to focus on being a mom. Sure, that's fair. I'm not going to get into the gender politics of that, uh, of a decision from a woman I do not fucking know. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Like, <laughs> like she's not a bad person for this. I'm just, I wouldn't mind seeing the role where she like also kept acting. Yeah. One last little bit I do want to touch on. I really love some of the sound design here. It does such a good job of ratcheting up the tension when the visuals are not necessarily there to support it. Like, for the most part, a lot of the horror scenes happen when it's in relative brightness. Mm -hmm. The interior of the car is a little dark, but not a lot. But most of the time when the Lamia comes to visit Christine at her home, it's like the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. I think the darkest scene is probably the graveyard, and even then we have a lot of the colors of night that you get in movies to like mm -hmm. allow you to see what's happening. It is at no point a difficult vision. And I think to compensate for not leaning on the darkness as much as other horror films do, having just incredible sound design, giving a sense of the space and what Christine is hearing mm -hmm. is really good. Another film that does this really well is um, It Chapter One. Mm-hmm where most of the horrific scenes are happening in broad daylight. Yeah. There's a lot of technical excellence in here. Like we haven't even really talked about like that really fun exorcism scene or the stuff at the start. Uh, but we are running out of time, so I think we should probably get into our end segment. Uh, Final Girl, Best Girl. Yes. Not a hard contest here, but who solved the problem better? <laughs> Joanna, definitely. <laughs> Joanna solved it. I mean, it, you can say in one way or another that Christine solved the problem. She just didn't win. <laughs> How? How did she solve the problem? I mean, the Lamia is 
no longer going to be terrorizing anyone. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say so, because I think there was an implication in the medium scene that it would be possible to, like, bind the Lamy into a goat and then kill it, and so, like, it would be gone-gone. Lamy lives to drag another day. That's true. But yeah, I do think we have to give it to Joanna. Yeah. There are no more evil robots, mm-hmm. presumably. Which then brings us to our decision of what film is moving on. Oh, Drag Me to Hell, easily. Yeah. Like, we had so much fun watching Drag Me to Hell. And Separate Wives isn't bad. It just feels very bland and dated. And it feels like it doesn't do enough to sell its criticisms. Yeah. Whereas Drag Me to Hell has a lot of flaws, but it's also kind of just a fun ride. Drag Me to Hell is a really good thing if you, in like that kind of horrorish mood, but you want things that aren't going to be too scary for folks who like don't want to deal with like jump scares and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that means that Drag Me to Hell gets to move on to round two, and the separate wives have to go back in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm so sorry for who I am. Uh, I'm going to just go away and say 50 Hail Sea Randy Weavers. So that brings us to the films coming up next week. Mm-hmm which will be Jennifer's Body and Us. The opposite of each other movies. (laughs) Yeah. Jennifer's Body is definitely going to be queuing much closer to something like Drag Me to Hell. I wrote in my notes that this and Jennifer's Body are (laughs) co-universal. They honestly could be. Whereas Us definitely trends more to what's happening in the now of horror. Like what is popular, what is interesting and experimental. It's much more cerebral. It requires the audience to put in effort. Mm-hmm. Whereas Jennifer's body requires the audience to put an effort in different ways, and those ways are to not turn it off. <laughs> also, uh, some like uh, gore trigger warnings, and Jennifer's body trigger warning for any slur you can think of. Yeah, body shaming. Yeah. It's written by Diablo Cody, so... <laughs> just Good luck with that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't mean to mean there are parts of Jennifer's body that I deeply love. Uh, to find out what those are, make sure to follow us <laughs> on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Until next time, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>